0: in contraptions first time I've tried to do this and it's not doing it Thank you for being here this evening. I can tell you that I'm excited about the lesson that I'm going to present. It's based upon a truth that probably all of us know, or most of us know, but it's one of those things that sometimes we just need to sit down and think about and put into words and to realize what it's telling us. It's a lesson that I think that if you're here and you're an earnest Christian, that will build your confidence in the hope of salvation. And it's a lesson that I hope that if you're not a Christian, that you will see God's goodness for what it is, and it will encourage you to accept his invitation to come unto him and be a Christian. I want to entitle the lesson, God's Plenteous Grace. And I want you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the book of Psalms in the 86th chapter. And I'm going to read with you verses 1 through 5. And I particularly want you to hear verse 5 in the King James Version, though. The writer says, Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day. Rejoice the soul of your servant. For you, O Lord, I will lift up. And then he says, for thou, Lord, this King James Version, thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon you. I've chosen that verse because I like the way that the King James sounds, plenteous in mercy. And I want to begin by telling you we're not trying to do some sleight of hand with the text. I know the text talks about our being plenteous in mercy, or God being plenteous in mercy, and our title is Plenteous in Grace. And I know that some people make a distinction between those two things. But I think it's all right for us to say that he is plenteous in grace because the same language that you see used of mercy is also used about grace in other places. For instance, in the book of Ephesians in the second chapter, and about verse 5, Paul talks about God being rich in mercy. But if you turn back to the book of Ephesians in the first chapter, in verse 7, he talks about him being rich in grace. And so this idea of richness, that's the idea of plentiness. And so even if our, our verse, our text itself doesn't use the word grace, I think we're certainly okay in saying we're going to talk about God's plenteous grace. The second thing I want to suggest to you is, though, that I know that there are people that make a distinction between grace and mercy. And over and over, I've seen people talk about mercy means you don't receive something you deserve. For instance, we're all sinners. We deserve the wrath of God to come down upon us. But in God's mercy, he doesn't give us that wrath, they say. We're exempt from that wrath. And then they will define grace as being that that you receive which you don't really deserve. And because we're all sinners, none of us really deserve heaven, but their idea is that by grace we receive this that we don't receive or don't deserve. And so they make this slight distinction between mercy and grace. Mercy is that that you you should get but that you don't get. That is, it keeps you from getting that that you should get but don't want, and grace would be that that gives you something that you don't deserve. I have to tell you that I'm not quite convinced of that little nuance in in those two words, and I'll tell you why. I don't think that it's consistent with the scriptures. You remember last week, Mark, or Reagan, talked about uh, two passages, one passage really, Mark, the 10th chapter. Uh, He talked about the disciples, and then he talked about Blind Bartimaeus. And I want you, if you would, to look to the book of Mark in the 10th chapter. And notice Mark 10. And look, if you would, down to verse 47, I think it is. It's talking about Bartimaeus and says, When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, what was Bartimaeus wanting? He was wanting his sight back. And did he use the word mercy because he felt like he deserved to be blind and now he's asking God to give him something or Jesus to do something that he didn't really deserve? Or was he just crying out for the compassion of Jesus and wanting Jesus to be compassion on him and heal him from this blindness. And I think that's the case, really. And it is used in mercy, but it's not something that he actually deserved, as far as we know. It was just asking for compassion. Look at two more passages, if you would. Look, first of all, if you would, to the book of Titus and the third chapter for a moment. I want you to look at Titus, the third chapter, and I want you to look at verse 5. Titus 3 and verse 5. And it's a passage that's probably familiar to most of you. Paul is writing to these people, and he says in verse 5, that we're... I'll begin in verse 4. He says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now just keep that in mind, that he says you're, we're saved by the washing of regeneration or by his mercy through the washing and regeneration. And then look over, if you would, to the book of Ephesians and the second chapter and the passage that most of us know. For by grace you're saved. Through faith, by grace you're saved. And here's my question. Was Titus, or when Paul wrote Titus, was he trying to say we're saved in that we escaped something we deserve, and that's the only thing that he has in mind? And then when he wrote Ephesians, was he trying to say that by grace we're saved, we receive something that we don't, don't really deserve? Or is salvation really both of those things? Is salvation really the... The freeing us from sin and thus escaping the wrath of God and at the same time receiving the blessings of living in heaven. I have to tell you, that's my concept of salvation. It's not just escaping hell. It is escaping hell but also enjoying heaven. And when Paul writes and says we're saved, I don't think he's trying to in one place say you're escaping hell but you're not getting heaven. And then the other place saying, you're getting heaven, but you're not escaping hell. I'll tell you the truth of the matter is, you don't get in hell, you'll be in heaven after this world's over, when judgment comes. And if you're in heaven, you're not going to be in hell. It's salvation that he's talking about. And if you look at the book of Ephesians, and the second chapter, prior to his saying, for by grace you're saved, he talks about how that we were dead in sins, but we're now made alive in Christ Jesus. He's talking about both how that we come out of that death and we're made alive. And in Ephesians, the first chapter, he talks about how that we are redeemed, and there he talks about it's by grace that we're redeemed, which means the forgiveness of our sin. And so the whole process is involved, and yet here's one place that he's talking about how that we're saved by grace, And then the other place, he's talking of saved by mercy. And I'm saying I'm not sure there's that much distinction between them. Look one more passage, if you would. Turn over to the book of Hebrews in the fourth chapter. And, of course, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Christians, but but look down to verse 16, Hebrews 4 and verse 16. He said, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Where is he trying to invite us to? come to the throne of grace. And then he says that we may attain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so we're going to the throne of grace so that we can get mercy? Is that making some difference between it? Or is this throne of grace including this mercy? I'll tell you what I I really kind of think that the word mercy carries with the idea of of compassion and grace just is more the idea of unmerited favor. And that sometimes he uses, probably by choice, the word mercy because he wants us to know that we are getting compassion. Not necessarily something we, we deserve that's being removed from us, like the blind man. But it's because of his compassion and that we're receiving heaven, that that's grace, favor, and that this idea of mercy just sometimes emphasizes that compassion is involved in it. And I'll suggest to you that both uh, mercy and grace, that they spring from the love of God. And Ephesians would show you that again in Ephesians 2, that we're, he's rich in mercy, that it comes from his love. And we see over and over how that uh, we receive grace and we understand that his love was shown to us, that grace was shown to us in the death of Jesus Christ even before uh, Christ came to this world and while we were yet sinners. But it still really doesn't matter how you look at grace and mercy because we're talking specifically about grace and the idea that this is plentiful. And that's the point that I really want to get across to you this evening, that God is plentiful in grace. I read the King James Version because I like that phrase, plenteous in mercy, and that word plenteous. It just seems like a word that, that you say it, and you can just see the see the amount of grace or mercy that is there. But if I continued to read the New King James, you'd, you'd see that he said that God is abundant in grace. And if you look up this word uh, plenteous in lexicon, you'll find that it says something that is abundant, and then it'll say something that's great, talking about amounts. And so the idea behind this being plenteous is that there is a great amount of, of this available unto us. Let me just give you one other instance where this word is used that I think can can convey to us the idea of plentifulness. If you were to turn back to the book of Exodus, or excuse me, the book of Numbers in the 20th chapter, you'd find that this was a time that the children of Israel were in the wilderness of Zin and at Kadesh, and that they began to complain to Moses because they were not in the land of Egypt again, and one of the things they said was, "You brought us out here, and there's no water." And so Moses carried their complaint to God, and God tells Moses, "said You get Aaron, and you get your rod, and you get the children of Israel together, and go and speak to the rock, and I'll bring forth water from it." And so Moses gathers his rod, he gets Aaron with him, and he goes to. The rock with the children of Israel. And you remember, he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. Now, he had spoke or had struck a rock in times past when water had came out. But this time, God had told him to speak, and instead he struck it, and God was displeased with him. But it tells us, even though he struck the rock rather than speaking to it, that water came out. And if you look at verse 11, it says, water came out abundantly. And that's the same word that's translated plenteous. And here's my thought. How much water did they have? Do you think they had to to get there and just measure out little bits and each one of them got a swallow of water maybe that day? That text says that there was enough water for all of Israel and for all their animals. And my point is that here it came out abundantly. Same word that's used about our grace. And what we understand, or at least what I envision in that water coming out, that there was not one Israelite that wanted water that there wasn't water for. They didn't go around passing out water and get to the end and say, Oh, I'm sorry, there's not enough water for you. There was enough water for every one of those Israelites and even their animals. And I suspect there wasn't just a swallow, that there was enough to quench all of their thirst and probably some left over. And the point being that that's the attitude or or what he's saying about grace, that it's not just meted out a little by little, that it's abundant, that there's no one that needs grace that will come up short because God is insufficient or because his grace is insufficient. There'll be some that don't receive the grace, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, but it won't be because God is insufficient in grace. His grace is plenteous. Let me give you two examples that I think that shows you that how gracious God is and how plenteous His grace is. Look, first of all, if you would, to the book of 1 Timothy and the first chapter. And you probably already remember that this is a passage where Paul is writing about his past life. And if you look down in verse 13, he says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I attained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And so here's Paul. We remember Paul first shows up at the end of chapter 7 of Acts where he's holding the coat of those that stoned Stephen. And then we read about him in the first part of Acts 8, where they're making havoc of the church, and he's involved in that. And then we see him in chapter 9, where he is uh, going forth from Jerusalem, even up unto Damascus, so that he could persecute and put Christians to death. And that's, of course, when the Lord appeared to him. And so he writes about those past times, and he said, I was before a blasphemer. I spoke against Christ, against Christ. Uh, God's plan of salvation in Christ Jesus. And I was a persecutor. I, I persecuted the people that, that claimed to be Christians or those that were trying to bring Christianity to people. And then he said, and I was insolent. And if you look up that word, it's a word that suggests that uh, he is uh, insulting and a maltreater. And so not good in any sense. And yet he said, even though that's what I was, he said, I attained mercy. And then he says, and the grace of the Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. And so he says, I received mercy, I received this grace it was abundant. And then he says, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And so here's Paul. He has been a blasphemer, he's been a one that has persecuted Christians, put Christians to death, going to put Christians to death when he was converted, and yet there's grace sufficient to cover all of his sins, and to give him a home in heaven, and to make him a servant of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's, an, that's something, isn't it? I can tell you that I've never killed a Christian. I've... Uh, never killed anyone. And so doesn't it stand the reason that there's an abundance of grace that's available? The second example, I want you just to go back in thought to 2 Samuel, the 12th chapter. We've been talking a couple of weeks about David. And you remember all of the sins of David? And we listed them in class the other day, starting with, with the... Uh, looking upon Bathsheba and how that would be lust and then coveting and, and then the, the fornication or adultery and then the killing of Uriah and the lying to Joab and having him do all that. And, and I think we listed 13 or 14 sins. And yet, in the book of Acts in the 13th chapter in verse 22, he is spoken of as a man after God's own heart. And you see passages like the book of Psalms in the 32nd chapter where he is praying and asking for for forgiveness. And You see Psalms 51 where he, he shows you his heart and how grieved he is that he did this after Nathan said, David, you're the man. And all of those sins, and God is still willing to forgive him and calls him in the New Testament a man after God's own heart? I'll tell you that that's where this sermon really started some time ago as it developed in my mind. That I thought about, here's David and all of the misgivings that he did, and yet he is still counted as a man after God's own heart. And I have oftentimes prayed, God, make me a man after thine own heart. I want to be that kind of person. And doesn't it stand to reason that if if I am trying to be a man after God's own heart, that there's grace that is sufficient to cover any sin that I commit as long as I'm true to that purpose? Even if I get off the way for a while and, and sin and weakness or whatever, if I don't lose sight of my purpose that I am trying to serve God with all my heart and soul, doesn't it just stand the reason that there's grace sufficient to cover me too. And that's the point that I really want to get across. That if we are earnest Christians, truly striving to do right in God's sight, that there is grace sufficient to cover our sins. Now, I don't mean this to be any comfort for the person who has deliberately determined that he's not going to be a Christian. I don't mean it to be any comfort for those who go out and, and have a heart of disobedience and they do those things knowing they're wrong and wanting to do those things that are wrong and not wanting to do God's will. But for those of us who are trying to be men after God's own heart, we should be able to look at Saul and Paul and we should be able to look at David and and our confidence towards salvation should be increased or certainly boasted and not brought down. And know that as long as we're striving earnestly to be what we should be, then God's going to take care of us. There's a passage in the book of Philippians in the third chapter that to me just summarizes what we need to be as Christians. It was Paul writing the the book of Philippians in the third chapter, and it starts somewhere around verse 13 and so and And he talks about how that uh, he sought to be righteous, not with his own righteousness, but by faith, faith in Christ Jesus. And he's saying, I'm not trying to, to earn my salvation by keeping the law. I realize I can't do that. That's not how I'm doing it. I'm relying upon God's grace, upon the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on further and he says, here's what I do. He says, I count those things behind me as past. I, I don't try and hold on to those things. And he particularly was talking about all of the fleshly uh, accolades he could have had in the flesh. He didn't count those anything. He said, I count those as dung. They're just nothing he says anymore. And that's the way we've got to be. We've got to realize how precious salvation is and know that it's more precious than anything that this world has ever offered us or any that we could have gained in this world without Christ. And Jesus. Then he says, this is what I do. I, I press toward the mark. Notice, he, he knows where he's headed. He wants to get to heaven. And he said, I press toward that. I, I don't know the exact words, but it seems to me like if you see one of those runners that's getting close to the finish line and, and he's just stretching, trying to, to get there as quick as he can and as fast as he can. That's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about. I press toward the mark, toward the prize. I, I want it. That's where my heart is, and that's what I'm trying to get to. And then he says that we need to do that, and he says, and if we like anything else, God will show it to us. If that's our heart, then God will show it to us. And so he says, walk wherein you've attained, And if God, if there's something else, God will show it to us. I'll tell you, I don't know any more that a Christian can do than that. And I think that's what God requires of us as Christians. He wants us to to count him the most precious thing that we can have. He wants us to set our eyes on heaven and to press toward that mark and always be diligent, studying to show ourselves approved and to walk wherein we've attained. And also be of the mind, Lord, if if I've done something wrong, show it to me, because I want to correct it. And I'm confident that if that's our attitude and that's our heart, then there's grace sufficient to cover my sins. and to give me that home in heaven and to remove the sins from me. There are a couple of things, though, that I, I, I want to point out. Some people have the attitude that grace is just automatic. In fact, there's about three things I want to suggest to you, and I'm just going to go ahead and tell you all of them, and then we'll we'll talk about them as we go. Uh, some people think that grace is just automatic, that you just live your life like you want to, and, and then when we get into judgment, God's just going to say, well, you weren't real good, but I'm gracious, you go on in. The second thing, I want us to know that grace is found in Jesus Christ because there are some people that uh, that want grace, but they don't want it in Christ Jesus. But grace is always in Christ Jesus. And then the third thing is that there are people that think that there's nothing for us to do uh, to receive this grace, and that's incorrect too. But let's go back to this idea about uh, that grace is just automatic, that you can live any way that you want to and then... When you get up to judgment, God's just going to say, well, I'm gracious, it's okay. Go back to our text for a moment in the book of Psalms and the 86th chapter, and listen to verse 5 again. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. He's ready to forgive. And abundant in mercy, now listen, to all those who call upon you. It's not automatic. He says He is ready to forgive, and He's ready to forgive us any time that we comply with His laws of forgiveness. But He says it's for those people that call unto you. If we're going to receive that grace, we're going to have to call. Look over, if you would, to the book of Isaiah, the 55th chapter, and I want you to look at verse 6 and 7. Isaiah 55 and verse 6 and 7. He said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our Lord, for he will abundantly harden. See how it started? Seek the Lord. You remember Acts, the 17th chapter, when Paul preached at Mars Hill, and he said that we ought to seek God and that he's not far from any one of us. But still, we have to seek him. You ever thought about the, the parable of the prodigal son? You remember the story told in the book of Luke, in the 11th chapter, in about verse 15, where uh, the son says, Give me my inheritance. The father gives him his inheritance, and he goes and, and wastes his substance in riotous living until it's all gone, and he's in the pig pen. And he comes to himself, it says, and realizes, hey, even the servants have it better in, in my father's house than I have it now out here in the pig pen with no, nothing to eat. He so said, I know what I'll do. I'll I'll rise and go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. And he arose and he went. And as he came, you remember the father saw him and, and ran to meet him and, and took him and took him back as a son. He said, just just make me as a servant. But the father is gracious, and he says, you're my son, and you were lost, and now you're found, you were dead, and now you're alive. But here's my question. Did the father's attitude suddenly change? Was it one day he's hard against that son, and then he comes, and suddenly he's for him? No. That father had the same attitude of love and desire for his son all the time. No doubt he'd look down that road wishing he could see him come home sometime. But he didn't receive the blessings and didn't get the the grace that was given to him by the Father until he came. And my point is, we too are going to have to come to the Father. That is not automatic. We do have to know that we have to come to him in order to receive it. Look, if you would, to the book of Hebrews in the 7th chapter. One last passage on this point. Hebrews, the 7th chapter. And you remember uh, that Hebrews is comparing a lot of the Old Testament to the New Testament and how that we are far better off in Christ than the sacrifices that they had. 7 verse 25. Therefore he is also able to save to the utmost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercessions for them. When are they saved? He says, when they come to the Father, through Jesus Christ. And so this idea that, well, God is gracious and I don't have to worry about my sins or don't have to really be concerned about it. Uh, God will take care of them. We have to seek his grace. Even the passage tells us those that call on him. And then secondly, as we said, Grace is always in Jesus Christ. Look over, if you would, to the book of John in the first chapter. And you remember John starts a little different than some of the others. They start with the birth. John just rushes in and telling us about who God or who Jesus was, that he was the Word and and he became flesh. But look at chapter 1 and verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law, you kept it, and if you kept it without falling or without sinning, without breaking a commandment, then you had you could have be saved. You would, you would need grace, but nobody did that. And so now he says the law came, but then grace came through Jesus Christ. He was going to save us even though we had not lived perfectly. I go back again to the book of Ephesians and look at a couple of passages. Look at Ephesians 1 and verse 7 again. That's the passage we mentioned a while ago where he talks about rich in grace, but he says, talking about Christ, in whom or in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Where does he say we find this redemption? He says we find it through His blood, through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of sins. And if you turn over Uh, To chapter 2 and verse 7, again, he's talking about salvation. He says, That is the ages to come he might show the exceedingly riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, he says, And, of course, there are passages that tell us that we get into Christ Jesus by being baptized into Christ. You remember John 14 and verse 6, and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You won't be in the Father's presence without grace. But the only place that you get that grace is in Jesus Christ. And for those that are not Christians, they get it in Christ when they become Christians and they're baptized and their sins are washed away. For us, we, we pray and we get that grace He's willing to forgive us, but it's in Christ Jesus. And we've just mentioned, if you were listening carefully, that there's something for us to do. You know, even David in the Old Testament, you look at Psalms 32, and he's talking about this time that he's committed all these sins, and he says, when I kept quiet, then God's hand was heavy upon me, My mouth was turned into the drought of the summer. And then I confessed my sins, and he was willing to forgive me. And that's even picked up and used in the book of Romans in the fourth chapter when he's talking about how we're justified by faith and points out that justification by faith is by grace because it's not something we've earned. God is counting our faith as our righteousness on this occasion but he had to confess his sins. And you remember Paul that we talked about? You remember Acts numerous places where his conversions are recorded, but you remember Acts 22.16 where he talked about Ananias came and talked to him and said, Why tarryest thou? Rise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He had something to do. And just as a side Think of David, if you would. Here's a man that under the Old Testament. So he's kind of in covenant relationship with God. And what did God want him to do? He wanted him to confess his sin. For those of us that are in Christ today, what does he want us to do when we sin? He wants us to humbly admit that we've sinned and confess our sins and ask God to forgive us. 1 John 1 and 2. Chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2. And what does one need to do to find that grace to begin with? They need to be baptized into Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul was doing. And he's one that was at that time not a part of the covenant. The Old Testament had ended and now they were all on equal plane and, and had to be baptized into Christ. And that was the way that he would get into covenant relationship with Christ and find that grace. But once they've done that, that sin is gone. And they are as pure as snow in the sight of God. Here's the conclusion of the whole matter. That if you stand before God in judgment and you are lost, it will not be because God's grace is insufficient and just doesn't reach out for you. It'll be because you don't have a heart after God's own heart maybe a heart of disobedience, that you're you're content to commit sin and to keep on committing sin, that you commit those sins and, and it doesn't grieve you. You don't worry about the fact that you've just saddened God because you've let him down and you've fallen short again. No godly sorrow. Maybe a little bit of sorrow if you got called or something, but not godly sorrow, not not. I am so sorry, Lord, that I've, I've yielded to sin. It won't be because of a lack of grace, but it'll be because of a lack of obedient heart or because of a lack of faith. I've said before and say again this evening, but there is no reason for us not to be successful as Christians. Because even if you've been somebody that would have been a murderer, even if you've murdered Christians because they were Christians, we have an example where God saved somebody like that. And what more could you do? And and what more than Paul saying, this is a worthy of saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came to seek and save the lost or to save sinners, of whom I'm chief. Can't get any worse, he says. And so you're not, you're not out of grace, not out of the reach of grace, I'll put it that way. And even as Christians, if we sin, if we're sincerely trying to press toward that mark, walking wherein we've attained, asking for forgiveness, and asking God to show us where we fall short, He'll do that, and we can be saved. No reason in the world for any of us to be lost if we're lost it's because of our choice or because of our neglect. As the writer of Hebrews says, how shall we how can we be saved if we neglect so great a salvation? I want you just to go home knowing that the grace of God is plenteous. He is ready to forgive and that all of us can expect to get to heaven. A cause of grace, if we'll just do what he says. If you. you're here this evening and subject to the invitation in some way and we can assist you, then we'd be glad to do that as together we stand and sing. Have my affection been nailed to the cross?